0: This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is February the 17th, 2004, and we're in a fundraising period. I have a premium today, a new book by Doris Lessing. It's titled The Grandmothers. For those of you who want a copy of this book, let me give you the phone number once, and then I'll do it the last five minutes. Please go ahead and call in, get the book, and subscribe to KPFA. If that's what you feel you need to do today, I've got only ten copies. It's a sixty dollars subscription, and our phone number is one eight hundred Hey KPFA. That's four three nine fifty seven thirty two. And I'll be sensible and try to repeat that later. I always forget to give the phone number. It's about like my level of uh, response, I, I have just found a packet of letters that I forgot, I, I lost them and I forgot to answer them and I thought how can I expect people to call in the station and subscribe when I am so sloppy, so careless <sighs> those of us who <laughs> <laughs> submit to manic depressive swings yes, sometimes I answer the mail with heaps of articles and I gush forth and then then I turn around and lose stuff. I really wish I were more consistent, but if I were, I suppose uh, I'd have some, you know, life insurance. This book I'm giving you is vintage Doris Lessing, and it is a gift. She's uh, the real thing, you know. She's a literary luxury. She digs deep and looks beyond the ordinary. This is not a book about uh, <laughs> grandmother's generic. This is about all those human secrets that we recognize but have so much difficulty understanding. Um, yes, there are four short novels here and I'll read you some bits from them. Uh, they, they're all over the map. Uh, they're, they're the sort of thing that, you know, I need to take off for a weekend and, and study. Uh, it's hard these days, you know, when most of us are uh, worn out with all the journalism, it's hard to take a, a real book and let it soak and think about it. But Doris Lessing uh, is uh, authentic. She was born 1919, one of our great English writers. She wrote The Golden Notebook back, oh, years and years and years and years ago. I would say it was my introduction to feminism along with... Uh, Um, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, but Doris Lessing's Golden Notebook was a writer's book. Um, The concept behind it was that we have all these separate notebooks, the black notebook and the blue notebook, the personal, the political, all that kind of thing, and we separate them. Women do. I did at any rate, and we compartmentalized our lives. By the end of the Golden Notebook, she has synthesized all these aspects of her life, you know, the political, the personal. It all becomes this great Golden Notebook, which is our lives. Uh, I always recommend the Golden Notebook to anyone who is just beginning to get it. <laughs> it's just one of those uh, books that I, I don't know how it would play to the young women of today. But in the 1970s, it certainly changed my life. Uh, and I'll read you some bits from the grandmothers in a minute, but I just can't resist taking just a minute or two to share my wild enthusiasm for these mass marriages going on in San Francisco. Boy, did I need something to cheer me up this week. Uh, since last Thursday, yes. What is it, almost 3,000 are we up to, uh, couples? Anyway, who would have thought in this day and age, that we would be celebrating marriage. Uh, In the current context, of course, this is a a kind of a hippie bee in hundreds of gay flower children dancing in the streets, metaphorically speaking. What a scene for the children of the nation to witness. A love in, and then some. And how mean-spirited to try to stop them. Ah, uh, give love a chance. I hope this helps the election. Uh, when it all started last Thursday, I thought, what fun if all of us just went over to San Francisco and took out a license. Uh, I mean, I, I confess to being a lifelong heterosexual, but there's always hope. And anyway, legal marriage is not something that I take very seriously. The point is that a lot of people do. They think it's a big deal. As John Kerry says, it's a matter of rights, civil rights. Uh, taking the sacraments, well, I think that's up to the various churches, the various religions. They can make their choices. But our relationship to the state, that's another matter. We should all be equal under law. The difficulty here is calling civil union a marriage. It's this problem in semantics Oh, boy, it's going to bollocks up the next presidential election, I think. What's in a word? Everything. Actually, I did change my mind when I heard that it's going to cost $82 to get married in San Francisco this week. (laughs) That's too much money for me. The only time I got married for real, it cost $2. That was in Manhattan in 1957. I persuaded this gay actor I knew. I, I said, would you come along and be my witness? Uh, I was all alone back there. It was Christmas, and my friends had come back to California, and this actor, he did try to save me, I remember. Uh, we couldn't get change for 20 bucks because it was Christmas Eve, and uh, the dear man, the actor, he disapproved. He went out to, to make... Um, change and he didn't come back for more than an hour and he kept asking me did I really want to do this (laughs) I was 23 I dressed in black from the skin out my Italian landlord had threatened to throw my visiting boyfriend out of the apartment he said you California girls may get away with this sort of thing where you come from he said but I run a respectable apartment building (laughs) anyway after the uh, ridiculous ceremony uh, my husband and I we nailed the marriage license to the front door I haven't seen the damn thing since the uh, well the marriage lasted nine years till 1966 that was a year when I woke up or the world woke up something changed radically I felt strong enough to go it alone by then I had these two children. That, after all, is the name of the game. My two sons are the reward of my life, unearned. Gift from the gods. Of course, I always say that the funny thing about men, I just think it's best to grow your own. (laughs) All the evidence uh, out there these days is telling us that the gay couples that we read so much about, that they're just as equipped as the heterosexual couples to become parents, maybe there's even a little evidence that they are more self-aware, a little more. Uh, what is that? Conscious of what goes down. Check out a new cable television show called The L Word. It's all about lesbians. Well, sort of. There are plenty of heterosexual confusions, but. Ozzie Davis has this great role as the father of two daughters. Uh, Pam Greer plays the alienated one. Wow, Pam Greer, she's terrific. The other daughter is a light-skinned woman. She's a lesbian having a child, a baby, together with a, uh, white woman. Over dinner, this couple, they tell Ozzie Davis, the dad, the, uh, uh, he's going to be the grandfather, that the sperm donor is an African-American. I have to admit, I felt a little sympathy for the Ozzy Davis character. Um, he can play mean if you've seen him in some of Spike Lee's pictures. Anyway, he says, how does an African-American donor make the child his grandchild? You know, are all black people one, that sort of thing. Raises a lot of very hot issues. Oh, dear me, it's a long time coming, the day when all men will be fathers to all sons. I think that's a utopian dream, but uh you never can tell. One never know, do one. Anyway, I like the L word, this new series. Now that Sex and the City is ending, I need a fix. Uh There is some high humor in the L word. <laughs> it's... It's definitely cable, uh, you know, if you have children, of course, you must be discreet. Uh. But in the latest episode, there's a young man, uh heterosexual man. He's in despair. He's just got married and then deserted a woman. Uh, he discovers her having sex with a uh, devastatingly beautiful lesbian, and she begs his forgiveness, says she wants to be his wife. They run off, get married, Uh then uh, he fails to consummate the marriage because of his, uh, what, grief. He speeds away from the motel. He leaves his sleeping bride and uh, he's stopped by this cop. <laughs> this is a scene for the ages. Anyway, the cop is, uh, uh, you know, uh, interested. He hears the story and then he kind of trips out. There's this terrific spacey monologue. And this cop, he says all those things that so many people are afraid to say. He starts out saying, you watch porn? Yeah, everybody watches porn. Then he goes on to specify all the reasons why no one can compete uh, with same-sex knowledge. i got to get a copy of that script. <laughs> I thought it was a howler. Anyway, he explains that both sexes desire what can only be absolutely satisfied or met uh, by someone who knows the territory intimately. Aha! I was tempted to mail the writers a copy of Ernest Hemingway's essay, Movable Feast. In that essay, Hemingway insisted that heterosexual intimacy... ...can match anything that homosexuals know. He he wrote it to Gertrude Stein, if I remember correctly. But I'm just going to go ahead and assume that sexual skills and uh, talents are about as various or as limited... ...as the human beings practicing them. I'm going to believe that passionate virtuosity is always a possibility... And that sometimes we find it where we least expect it. But that cops monologue <laughs> I wish it were on the front page of the New York Times. There isn't much sex in the new HBO movie Iron Jawed Angels. That's the one about the American suffragists. Suffragists in the United States, please, that is the word suffragette is a diminutive. The American suffragists, they won the vote for women in nineteen twenty. There's certainly no hint of lesbian relationships. Uh, Angelica Houston plays Carrie Chapman Catt with much gusto. Hilary Swank plays Alice Paul. See, she didn't die till 1977, I think, Alice Paul. Uh, she went to jail and suffered the brutal force feeding. They, they're pretty graphic with that stuff in the film. Uh, that was the punishment for these women who insisted on demonstrating for their rights, even during time of war. Now, that's the part that's so contemporary. Uh, it's important that they illustrate that, uh, you know, that even when World War I was on, the women stood out in front of uh, the gates of the White House demanding that they be given their democratic rights, their constitutional rights. Uh, my favorite character is Inez Mulholland. She's a very romantic historical figure. Uh, actually, she was more serious about stopping the war. Uh, she and Emma Goldman. Well, I'm not sure Emma was strictly with the women, but um, anyway, it was a conflict for a lot of the women, whether or not they should... Uh, roll bandages, you know, or whether they should fight for women's rights. But Inez Mulholland can't say no to Alice Paul. She's the one on the horse. I've seen her pictures, the one with the great wings. They had a parade. Uh, They tried to steal the thunder from uh, Woodrow Wilson when he was being inaugurated. The women staged a parade in Washington, D.C. Inez Mulholland died in harness. Uh, She had pernicious anemia, I think. I remember the story about her husband, Eugene Beaucevain, who um, his heart was broken when she died so young. He later married the poet, Edna St. Vincent Millay. That's a different kind of feminist. But in Iron-Jawed Angels, this uh, two-hour film, uh, we don't really get much historical accuracy. I mean, at least not in the tone. It's very... It's very contemporary in tone, but it's done in the right spirit. I think it appeals to today's young women for verisimilitude. I think you'd have to go back to the BBC production, television production, was a series titled Shoulder to Shoulder many years ago. Uh, not It was not a two-hour feature film like Iron-Jawed Angels. That was an ongoing series of hour-long dramas. Emmeline Pankhurst, the great British um, suffragist, was played by Sean Phillips. You remember that great actress. She played uh, Livia, the Roman empress in I, Claudius. <laughs> iron-jawed angels is uh, a reference to, um, oh, some newspaper man called them iron-jawed angels. I'm not f- sure um it's the right title for this feature, but it makes the point. The filmmaker... Uh, is easygoing. She lets these women worry about their hair and their hats and that sort of thing and even their boyfriends. And uh, they they just sort of leave that in to, to humanize these women. Uh, at the same time, they do show the real suffering that the women endured, uh, even the suffering of a senator's wife who learns that her uh, upper-class privileges and her rights inside the family are worthless when she sets herself against her husband's wishes. Uh, For some of us, this gender divide uh, is still the greatest chasm in human affairs. It's not easy to analyze. Equal, folks, does not mean the same. Uh, I was thinking about the gender divide as I watched the play currently on the boards at the Berkeley Rep. It's called Yellow Man. This play is all about colorism. One of the biggest isms of them all, I always like the term otherism, covers everything. Anyway, colorism is the internalized oppression created by a caste system imposed to justify the chattel slavery that ended more than a century ago in the United States, (laughs) ho-ho. It still sets the agenda, yeah. It's sitting there in the psyche of people all over the globe, as the feminist writer Bell Hooks tells us, we are addicted to white male supremacy. Back in uh, 1902, W.E.B. Du Bois told us that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line, not race, but color. Now, that color line, uh, as we know, is, is barbed wire, Race is something else. Race is mostly a metaphor. Most people don't know what race they are. Uh, Let's see. I'm not legally white in Virginia. Uh, It's about class markers. Biological realities are something else. Um, In Yellow Man, this play at the Berkeley Rep, we get one woman, one man, and two chairs. And they never really come together. They never really relate. We got us here two huge monologues. Each one struggles with his or her role within the pecking order. The two monologues reminded me, believe it or not, of Gertrude Stein's play Melantha, or Each One As She May, another uh, work of art in which the man and the woman never quite meet. They're like two railroad tracks running down, never quite connecting. uh the, Pecking order, of course, is threatening to kill both these individuals. Uh, I think of Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye, about the internalized oppression of black women. For the light-skinned male in the play, the hardest battle is with his dark father. For the female, the pain comes from, well, her mother's tragic life, which threatens her own soul, but... Uh, Her capacity for joy is finally drowned totally when the man that she loves self-destructs. The actress who plays this part, Deirdre N. Henry, has got to be an absolute knockout. This is an overwhelmingly... Well, I I hate to qualify a woman as, as a great beauty. Surely she can be that and still have all the power and charisma that this woman has, uh, I couldn't take my eyes off this actress. She seemed to me, uh, I, I saw all of Toni Morrison's characters, especially Sula. I see her alongside Alfre Woodard in these great classic plays that we are going to find written. Yes, we're going to have them very soon because Toni Morrison's going to find just the right uh Playwright, to help her put all of her characters into films and plays. Uh, Anyway, if you are a playgoer, check out Deirdre and Henry in Yellow Man, which is playing currently at the Berkeley Rep here in Berkeley Novel. Only got about five minutes to sell you a Doris Lessing novel. Oh, my gosh. I meant to spend half my time on this. I'm so... Thoughtless, we really need to raise this money, people. Now, this premium you can get from KPFA when you subscribe to the station for 60 bucks. And the book is Doris Lessing's The Grandmothers. And our number here, you can call us in the five and dime area code that's close by the station. That's 510 848 fifty seven thirty two. Or if you're outside our local area code, you call the eight hundred number. That's one eight hundred four three nine fifty seven thirty two or one eight hundred Hey H E Y Hey K D F 5732 fifty seven thirty two. Now let me tell you quickly what this wonderful book is about. Doris Lessing isn't traveling anymore. Let's see. This is a one of your $25 hardback type books. Uh, I missed her last time she came to the station. It broke my heart. I didn't know she was coming. I would have come down here and rolled out the red carpet. She was on the morning show briefly. There wasn't even anybody here to meet her. My gosh. Anyway, uh, the first novel is called The Grandmother's. Two women, close friends, fall in love with each other's teenage sons, and these passions last for years. <laughs> Until the women end them. Yes, a respectable old age. Oh, well, why not? Uh, and of course, we're mostly in, um, in Africa, in Rhodesia. Uh, well, it was then Rhodesia. All the places where Doris Lessing grew up. Uh, second novel is Victoria. And the Staveneys. A poor black girl has a baby with the son of a liberal middle-class family and finds that her little girl is slowly being absorbed into the world of white privilege, becoming estranged from her. Third novel is The Reason for It. Certain to appeal uh, to fans of Memoirs of a Survivor, this one describes... The birth, flourishing, and decline of a culture long, long ago, but with many modern echoes. And the last one, which I found probably the most intriguing, is called A Love Child. A soldier in World War II, during the dangerous voyage to India around the Cape, falls in love on shore leave and remains convinced that a love child resulted from the wartime romance. K, the Times of London, says Doris Lessing has an extraordinary feeling for the peculiar vulnerabilities of the young and the elderly. Her portraits of human relationships are quite staggering beauty. Evening Standard in London says thank goodness for Doris Lessing. While the rest of us flounder about noisily in the muddy waters of life, She never fails to expose with startling clarity the essential folly of our dreams and good intentions. I was thinking, what was it, Doris Lessing, somewhere she said, yes, cynicism comes when you're tired of being ashamed. So many things she has said um, have bothered me over the years. I think because she's the kind of writer that I trust, trust in the sense that, And I always think she's telling me a truth. She's completely honest. Sometimes she says things that I don't like. I don't want to hear them or know them. And they're the sort of contradictions, you know, that spoil my rosy view of life. And at the same time, I I need her to take me by the hand and say, okay, um, you must let go of this or that illusion. That was BS, my dear. Uh, she knows that human beings are simply illusion factories, you know. <laughs> At the same time, there's plenty of good stuff. I, I don't know why people always want to be confirmed in their Pollyanna vision of the world. Uh, I think that this or that truth does help set us free, uh... It's just that most of us wish to be comforted and confirmed in our prejudices. And when someone comes along to tell us that perhaps, perhaps there's something we have overlooked, you know, and perhaps things are not as they seem, uh, and it's time for us to grow up, that kind of writer is harder and harder to read, especially as we grow older. I would have thought it would get easier. But I'm so anxious to hang on to the last illusions that I have about, oh, men and women uh, and about, uh, let's call it, romance. Um, most of us in the literary, the literary world are closet romantics. We... We don't want to confess to it because that's, of course, the worst literary sin. But uh, you just scratch an English major and you're bound to find, uh, if not a closet romantic, at least someone who wants things to turn out right. You know, that's why we write literature, because life is so unsatisfactory. And we do want a happy ending, even if everybody dies, you know. The truth is that Doris Lessing doesn't allow us to do that. Uh, she takes you to the hospital, and uh, you smell all the smells. I want you to subscribe to KPFA today. I see one light lit. Oh, dear. Now, I have to yell at you. Uh, I'm no good at this, never have been. Please, folks, if you are interested in Doris Lessing, and if you are a uh, a person... Well, if if your friends, let's put it that way, if your friends are literary types, this would make a beautiful gift. It's a $25 book, and you get it for a $60 subscription to KPFA. You have to call us at 1-800-439-5732. Uh, that's 1-800-HEY-KPFA, spelled H E Y. K-P-F-A, or the local phone number in the five-and-dime area code is 848-5732. Okay, two lines. By golly, there's a third line. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to go home and answer my mail. And if you are someone who has written to me and I have neglected to answer your letter, forgive me. Um Write again or leave a message on uh, extension 630 and I will get back to you if I have forgotten. Once again, our number is 1-800-439-5732 or 1-800-HEY-KPFA. That's a $60 subscription and you get a $25 book. Doris Lessing, one of the great, great mothers of modern literature. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday at 3.30.